compassion for the condemned. You know that Romans 1.21 says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. A couple more times, Paul speaks of God turning them over. Begins with a foolish heart. And you know that Paul explains that they, being foolish, thought themselves to be wise. This may be man's most obvious problem. Meaning that when a man thinks he's wise and he's clearly not, most everybody else knows. It's pretty clear. Yet he continues to revel in his self-deception, thinking he's wise when in fact he's not. But there's another level of distance from God displayed to us in this text in Romans 1. But as we move back into this text this morning, I want to appeal to your hearts, those of you especially who have children. I know you are concerned for your children with regard to what the future in our country holds. We've been living in disaster, but that disaster is on fire now. And at a much more rapid pace than anything you or I have ever seen or our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents ever saw, the disintegration of our nation is happening before our eyes. And there's no stopping it. If you believe in a certain eschatology, a certain end-time theory, you might think that we're going to bring it back, but we're not. What's happening around us is what Jesus told us would happen around us. We see a people who was already foolish and now have become darkened of mind. Basking in foolishness. You know, we a couple weeks ago mentioned the reality that children are born into foolishness. The rod of reproof removes it far from them. It's true of all people. But how does a fool become wise? This is the issue. We're not looking to save America. But how does a fool become wise? Because you and I can and must be involved in individuals' lives, and you're going to, if not already, be exposed to the greater willingness for persons who are committed to sin to expose it publicly. Right? You're going to see that more and more, people being willing to take a stand for their sin publicly, no longer hide it. So how do you answer this question? How does a fool become wise? His folly must be exposed by someone who is wise. And if you're in Christ, then the Scripture's declaration is that that's you. You've become wise. God's granted you wisdom. He's opened your eyes. He's given you new life. And He's restored your mind unto legitimate sanity. So you can think rightly. You can receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're not foolishness to you. You do perceive them. You do discern them. How does a person who is in the dark find his way to the light? He has to be led to the light by someone who's in the light. Someone has to swing the door open into that darkened room and say, hey, over here. It's you and it's me. And I am convinced that you are looking for someone, and it should be leadership in your local church, to give you some hope and give you some concentrated help as far as where to put your attention, not only for the sake of the protection of your children, but that you would be faithful to Jesus Christ and be a proclaimer of the gospel and to do so effectively. And again, even as Jude has proclaimed, there are those whom Jesus has saved, 
And there are those whom he has and will destroy because they do not believe him. You know this, there are but two destinies eternally. One is the presence of God where we will enjoy his presence for forever. And the other is the absence of God and there will be eternal conscious torment. So how should you and I be thinking about this? You know, where should our minds and hearts be? Should we be gearing up? You know, should you be digging a hole in your backyard to sneak into when our country is attacked in ways that it can't be defended? I wouldn't recommend that. That's a lot of money, and you're going to die one day anyway. So, you know, why not just spend your resources and time and energy on being equipped? to share the gospel with those who hate you and want you dead. Because that'll last. That'll last. If you're taking notes, I'm going to quickly do a review of our points from last week. I recommend that you not try to get them down. If you want them, you weren't here last week, I recommend you listen to the recording. It's online. And we'll jump in uh, with the points. And I'll move slowly enough with today's points that you'll be able to get them down. Last week, we said in point number one, we wanted you to see the separating power of the gospel. The separating power of the gospel. In chapter one, in uh, verse one of Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes on to explain what the gospel is. Down in verse six, he says that Those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ are included as recipients of that gospel, recipients of grace and the gospel. He says to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we said this being set apart is a work of God in eternity past that's manifested in time during your lifetime that when he saves you you are now set apart for holiness and yet you are well aware of the fact that pseudo christianity in our in our day simply says once you're saved you know then you just kind of manage it however you want to and there's not necessarily going to be a hunger for holiness if you want to do that that's fine that is a false gospel when god sets someone apart he doesn't simply set them apart in a generic manner. He sets them apart unto holiness from the world's unholiness. And so there is a hunger for holiness. But the idea that God does not set someone apart for holiness goes hand in hand with the idea that man could have achieved his salvation by choosing it. He, in his unholiness, chooses something. Obviously, what he's choosing is something that appeals to his unholiness. On the other hand, God actually saves someone, when God redeems a person, when he makes a dead person alive, he then grants that person personal passion for holiness because now he's alive in Christ, dead to sin. Point number two, I'll move more quickly with these. I wanted to just introduce things that way. Point number two, the certain gratitude of one saved by the gospel. As you know, those who are turned over to a debased mind, started that process themselves by having an awareness of God, but not being thankful. Not Paul. Paul begins with an expression of gratitude to God for the 
faith of those whom he had ministered to. And he says that their faith is known throughout the world. Commitment to the gospel, an expression of the fact that they're actually set apart, not just pretending to be set apart because they made some sort of decision when they were five, but God actually did a work in them that resulted in being set apart. And Paul expresses his gratitude to God. He doesn't, you know, congratulate them <laughs> for their salvation. Doesn't reward them for their salvation. He's not even thanking them. He's thanking God because God accomplished that. Point number three, the abandonment of wrath for inexcusable ingratitude and dishonor. Unlike Paul, who was thankful, those who are ultimately turned over to a debased mind start that, as I said, by being unthankful. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We go on to see general revelation here. And Paul then explains that man is without excuse. Why? Because he knows God exists and yet he chooses to be unthankful to God and he chooses to dishonor God. Four we saw the self-inflicted destruction of unnatural conduct. This is verses 26 and 27. The simple reality is that those who have been given over to dishonorable passions have brought that upon themselves where women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men really did the same, and so the result is the due penalty in their persons for their error. The due penalty that they brought upon themselves. And it's no secret that those who have engaged in homosexuality have brought a due penalty upon themselves. Not only in the personal sadness that a person experiences when he defies and runs from that which is clearly natural, the man-woman relationship. And now the world has begun to distort that matter by saying, well, who really is a man and who really is a woman? He created them, male and female. And you say, yeah, but there have been studies that have been done, but the Bible says he created them male and female. So again, we're back to what do you believe? What do you believe? Believe in the Word of God and the reality that God created men to be men and women to be women, or do you believe what some psychologist conjured up in his basement in the middle of the night? Which is it? God is clear on these things. So why is it? You know, you and I can look at this and we can be very cold-hearted and we can say things like, ooh, how did that happen? You shouldn't be asking that question. They've been turned over to a darkened mind. And they initiated that process. They knocked over the first domino by being unthankful to God and dishonoring God. And God ultimately turned them over to a debased mind. And the result is that there is certain destruction, self-inflicted destruction for unnatural conduct. Number five, point five. We said the penalty of an unrighteous culture. We focused on the penalty of of an unrighteous culture. And this was chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And so looking at that penalty, we might think that God is just continuing in chapter 2 to talk about that penalty for them, but he doesn't. As I mentioned last week, he shifts gears in chapter 2, and he begins to talk to the Jew. He's been talking about the Gentiles who have been turned over to a debased mind. And there's a strong likelihood that as Paul is speaking to Jews, the Jews are going to be thinking, yeah, my morals are way better than those depraved people. Paul turns the tables on them here, uh, number six, with the judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. But how is this applicable for you and me? There will certainly be those in the New Testament church who exhibit inexcusable hypocrisy and are warranting God's judgment upon them. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And when he says the very same things, he's not referring to homosexual conduct. He's referring to that section just prior to this where he speaks of all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. He says they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that, yes, they've been turned over to a depraved mind, and those of you who judge them saying, aren't we better? He's saying, no. And you are condemned in this very moment as proven by your hypocrisy and your faulty judgment of others. Now listen, this is not a call for you and me to change our thinking about the severity of homosexual sin. We are to think what Paul said about it, but we are to be equally willing to examine our own hearts and ask the question, do we love the homosexual or do we hate them because we think their sin is so dirty and so nasty that we could never reach them? I referred you last week to 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says that these were you. Idolatry, homosexuality, thievery. Some would say, you know, isn't all sin equal? No, it's not. No, it's not. This is a level of sin that leads one to be turned over to a debased mind, turned over to a depraved mind. It's a different level of sin. It's insane. It's utterly remarkable that someone could think that which is clearly unnatural is actually natural. But over the course of time, they become desensitized and think that it's normal. Just because they say it's normal doesn't mean that it is. But that also does not justify your hypocritical judgment of them. The person who is hypercritical of the homosexual, but unwilling to be equally critical of his own gossip, and slander and divisive spirit, whatever else may be manifesting itself in his or her heart, is literally under God's condemnation equally, headed for the same eternal place. And how is this? How does this happen? It happens because a person thinks he brought himself to Christ. That's how it happens. He thinks he achieved God's satisfaction in his decision, in his pursuit of the Lord. That's how it happens. 
And he's deluded and he's foolish and he thinks he's wise. So what must be done? He must be shown the light by someone who lives in the light. He must be taught well. He must be counseled. He must undergo discipleship. He must be willing to receive truth from someone who knows truth and loves him enough to speak that to him in love. So we call this the judgment of God on the inexcusable hypocrite. Point number seven. Point number seven. The equality of depravity among all men. The equality of depravity among all men. In verse 5, Paul uses some unusual terminology here, or I should say some unusual grammar. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That is a question exclusively focused on the sovereignty of God. Is God sovereign over sin? Yes. If God is sovereign, He's sovereign over all things. I didn't say that He created sin or that He initiated sin, that He causes sin, but the point is that He's sovereign over all things. And so Paul asks the question, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, and it does, it does. The unrighteousness of man shows serves to show the righteousness of God because it shows the great contrast between man and God. In God's perfect, wise design, that's how he determined that things would best display his glory. That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Should we think that? Is God unrighteous? If our unrighteousness serves to display his righteousness, is he then unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? This is the faulty thinking, but the necessary question of a man-centered theology. It forces this question when it is exposed to the truth of God's sovereignty. Oh, fine, God is sovereign. Well, then how is it fair for him to judge me if he's sovereign? Paul is ready for that question. Those who engage in that thinking must simply read this text and believe it. He says in verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come? This is a presumptuous question. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, and then what does Paul say? Their condemnation is just. People who respond to sound teaching about the character of God with this question are yet condemned that's the problem they don't have the light of christ to understand truth they can't because they're yet condemned they need your compassion they need your patience they need your willingness to listen to the foolish comments and ready with the right timing to say what they will hopefully be willing to one day hear what then are we jews any better off not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And this is what I mean by this point, the equality of depravity among all men. And you might be thinking, um, I'm not as evil as ISIS, Hitler, 
the depravity of man is what levels the playing field. The point is that any measure of sin is a violation of the whole law, according to the Apostle James. Any violation of the law is a violation of the whole law. You say, well, my evil is not manifested to the degree as that of ISIS. You're right. You're right. So lest you or I begin to take credit for that, recognize that that is because of God's loving restraint on you. But the point is that in your depravity, in my depravity, in the depravity into which we were born, we would have done all levels of evil were it not for God's gracious restraint. And this is because of his sovereign control and his sovereign kindness. So when you or I start to take credit for what we haven't done and become willing to hypocritically judge those who have done it, we must remember God's sovereign grace. But the person who wants nothing to do with God's sovereign grace will continue in his willingness to think he's better than others. And he will never have compassion for the condemned. It's impossible for him to do that. He'll only have a hypocritical, judgmental spirit toward them. But when he recognizes the truth of this, and let's read it together, then he will become compassionate because he will acknowledge that he has received compassion. That's the moment that that changes. And he can acknowledge that it's by God's sovereign grace that he's given me compassion and he will want others to experience what he has experienced. Halfway through verse 10, none is righteous. You know this verse. None is righteous. No. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You believe that? No, I did. I remember when I sought God. I remember when I prayed that prayer. I remember when I asked him into my heart. Well, the Bible says you didn't. In fact, Jesus himself says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And all kind of grammatical gymnastics are on the books in an effort to twist this out of reality. But here and in the book of Hebrews, we see that no one seeks after the Lord. Well, doesn't Jeremiah say, choose you this day whom you will serve? Yes, he does say that to elect Israel. They're already saved. He's saying, get it together. You are the people of God. Act like it. He's not saying to all the other nations at that point, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's saying it to elect Israel. Your depravity, my depravity, it's equal. It's equal to anyone and everyone else's. And the typical argument against this comes from experience. Well, you don't even know me. How could you say this about me? Because God says it about you. The fact that I don't know you proves the argument that I'm not saying something based upon some experience with you. But the fact is that because God says this about us, what we are saying is that it is true. No one seeks after the Lord. Why? Because of a foolish heart. A dead heart, an inability, a total inability and a total deadness. There's much more here that we could look at. But just recognize this truth about the condition of man. He says in verse 20, and I'll finish this point with this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See that? By fulfillment of the law, personal seeming ability to obey and fulfill the law, one will not be saved. Why? Well, because the law reveals sin. What does that mean? 
in the moment that I think that, or I think I can, think that I have, or think I can fulfill the law, it becomes painfully obvious that it's exposing my sinful inability to fulfill the law. And that's because of my depravity. Well, point number eight. In case you're wondering, if you're visiting with us, we don't usually go this fast. We usually take a microscope and look at a couple verses, but I think it's important to do this. So, Point number eight, justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. Justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. You want a rich treatise, a very concentrated expression of the gospel. I told you last week in the, the end of the message, one of the most important things you can do is to understand and depend upon the gospel. Here's where you want to go. It's Romans 3, the most comprehensive expression of the, of the gospel in a doctrinal manner, an explanation of the doctrines of the gospel. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. Now, you know, as I said before, righteousness is a theme of the book of Romans. It's the issue. It's what God requires and yet man can't achieve it, and yet God has supplied it by grace freely to all who will believe in him. Okay, so, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now think of yourself as a practicing Jew who's been convinced by others that they are fulfilling the law, and now you believe, okay, I have to fulfill the law, and this uh, former rabbi comes along, and he's preaching in a synagogue, and he says that your justification, your righteousness, comes apart from the law. <laughs> Where are the stones? We've got to get rid of this guy. He's clearly a heretic. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, Jesus, you know, said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law, and he did. Every measure of the law was fulfilled in the faithful work of Jesus Christ. Having fulfilled the law, now Paul can say, apart from the law, righteousness is granted. Meaning, apart from your ability to fulfill the law. Why? Because Christ did. Because Christ did. And so now you love the law, you want to obey the law, but you're convinced that it wasn't because of obedience to the law that you became saved, that you received righteousness. You received righteousness, and now having received that righteousness, you long for the law that exposes that righteousness, but you know that it was not because of your ability to fulfill it, and you know that your maintenance or your sustenance of your righteousness is not dependent upon your ability to fulfill the law. Why? You couldn't, number one. Number two, he did it. And so it comes back to legitimate belief, trust, hope, dependence upon Christ, having fulfilled every measure of the law. The righteousness of God with which he has existed since eternity past is what he requires from you and from me. You say, I can't achieve that. That's a good start. The problem with the Jew was he said, got it, I'm covered. What's for lunch? And what we all should be saying is, I was born into total depravity. I couldn't choose that. I was blind. Fool. I had no ears to hear. I had no eyes to see. 
But the one who believes in him receives this justification. And you need to know this term. It's very important. This is called imputed righteousness. The word imputed simply means legally declared. What does that mean? It means that God declared it. It is an absolutely legal issue in the eyes of God. It is God's law, so to speak. That those who have trusted in Jesus Christ have received His righteousness. and Therefore, they're spared from the penalty for avoiding or for evading and defying and rejecting His righteousness and His law. Justification by faith alone is at the heart of everything we believe. So at the moment that you begin to kind of meander into thoughts of Arminian theology that says that you somehow achieved it or earned it or latched hold of it, or in the moment that you hear someone else starting to talk about that, that's the moment to be compassionate for that person. Be willing to hear, be willing to discuss it. If they're not willing, then you can't force them. But the person who will actually discuss it is the person whose mind God may be soon illumining we must be committed to justification by faith alone for all who believe in the gospel. I encourage you to go back through these notes at some point and get a real grasp on this in your efforts to minister effectively in our society. At the point that you have an increasingly sound understanding of and dependence upon the gospel is the point at which you will really begin to pray for people who can't save themselves. People who can't make a decision for Christ. And so what do they do? They hear someone say, well, you've got to make a decision for Christ. And so what do they do? They make a decision in the flesh and they choose the wrong Christ. They choose a Christ that's not the Christ of the Bible. They choose one, they choose a Christ, a man-made Christ who's satisfied with their disinterest in being set apart. A Christ who's satisfied with unrighteousness. Christ who somehow or another didn't die for holiness. He didn't die for the elect that they would be set apart. He simply died to make things better. You see, that's the Christ. That's the false Christ of a non-biblical theology. Well, point number nine. Point number nine. I want you to see the certainty and the confirmation of one who is justified by faith alone. Listen to this. What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Show me the passage in the Bible that says that Abraham asked Jesus into his heart, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You don't see anything like that. But Abraham believed. As I mentioned earlier, Paul points out in Philippians 1 that belief is granted. But because Abraham believed, God granted him proof in his life of this righteousness. Which comes first? The granting of righteousness or the belief? Well, it's impossible for someone to believe in their depraved condition. When God grants righteousness, it's proven in their belief. But what do we tell people? We tell people, if you believe, God will grant you righteousness because they come together. There's no such thing as believing in Him and not being granted righteousness. 
You say, I know plenty of people who believe in Jesus and have no devotion to righteousness. That's a false theology. That's a man-made, man-centered theology. It's very closely akin to Arminianism that says that you can make some kind of choice, but your life will never necessarily show it. Abraham's life showed it, just like your life shows it if you believed in him. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's speaking back here to the Jew who would say, no, 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 I've earned this. I'm doing works. I have obeyed the law. I've fulfilled the law. Well, then you're due your wages. Your wages are death. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How? Why? What happened? He believed. He believed. You say, well, I know a lot of people who believe in Jesus. Well, sure, they believe he existed. But do they believe in him? Have they placed their trust in him? Is it a volitional reality that they are daily devoted to the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Listen to what David says about this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's the deal. The one who is justified. The one who has been granted righteousness. This legal declaration, this imputed righteousness. For that person, his sin is not accounted to him. Why? Why? Because Christ bore it on the cross. Christ took his sin on the cross. He who knew no sin, we know who that is. In fact, it says God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Wait, well, hold on. So theologically, what does that mean? What's happening there? Christ, who is sinless, became sin? Is there some sort of physical, like a wheelbarrow full of sin that's dumped on him? No, don't think of it that way. Think of it as God thinks of it. Think of it to be as if he committed the sin. I'm not saying he did. That would be heresy. Jesus was impeccable, unable to sin, and yet received the full brunt of Satan's temptation in the desert received a temptation far greater than anything you and I have ever experienced. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, in your efforts to stay off sin, have you bled? You haven't. Jesus bled in his willingness to put off sin. And yet, in God's eyes, the guilt of sin was placed upon him. And in the sacrificial system, Although it wasn't a literal transfer, it couldn't be. A priest would place his hands upon that lamb or a goat in some cases, sometimes a heifer, a bird. And the sins of either, if it was the priest, it was the sins of the people. If it was a man in his own home, it was the sins of his family. And so there was a symbolic transfer 
from the priest who represented the sinless one. He was a priest. He was a representative, a symbolic representative of the sinless one. That was his role to do that. Not to say that he was sinless, but the point was he was supposed to be right with God, having confessed his sin. And now he's confessing the sins of the people and he's saying, Lord, may these sins be placed upon this lamb who, by the way, is spotless. We've checked out this animal and he's flawless in terms of physical appearance. And because he's flawless, in God's eyes, he's a legitimate sacrifice. And so, essentially, God's saying, if you'll transfer your sins, the sins of the people who are guilty and deserve death, to that lamb, I won't kill the people and you can kill the animal. As I said, there was never a literal transfer of the sins and there was never an ultimate atonement in that act but it looked forward to the ultimate atonement where Christ received our sins. He certainly received our sins. And what's the proof of that? Well, the proof is not in the imputation of righteousness. Because you can't see that. All you know that that's a legal declaration, and it is certainly true of the person who what? faithfully walks with the Lord. The person who hated his sin as Abraham hated his sin. The scripture goes on to explain to us that Abraham was not justified by his circumcision. In fact, the scripture asks the question, when was he circumcised? Was it before or after his justification? It was after. In fact, the record of the Old Testament shows us that it was 13 or 14 years after. Abraham was justified not by works, not by something he did, only by belief that was granted to him. And so in the same way, for that, that spotless animal that in essence symbolically receives the sins of the people or of the family, Christ being that lamb, the one to whom every lamb looked in a symbolic way, he, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, received the sins of all of the elect. And in the moment that he did, he now stands guilty before the Lord in God's eyes. And what is the necessary response? He must be sacrificed. The one who bears the guilt and the shame of the sin must be executed. So, if we were to look at Acts 2 and Acts 4, we would see that it is the predetermined plan of God that Christ be lifted up for that execution. He said, did God cause that? I say He predetermined it. I say what Scripture says. He predetermined it. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't if, as if God looked down and said, man, things are a mess. And by the way, he's not doing that today in light of the Supreme Court decision. It wasn't as if God looked down and said, what an absolute debacle. I've got to come up with something here. Oh, wow, this is going to be terrible, but I think it'll work. I think, I think I'll allow for my son to be executed. It was the predetermined plan. Those are God's words in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And so, God's righteousness is satisfied. That's what propitiation does. There is a legitimate and full satisfaction of God 
for all those who believe. And you say, Todd, which is it? Is it the elect or is it all those who believe? And the answer is a resounding yes with an exclamation point because all of the elect will certainly believe. So much emphasis in Romans 9 when it's looked at by scholars, theologians, Christians. So much emphasis on the doctrine of election. And there should be because that's all over the place there. But keep in mind that there's a term in the middle of chapter 9 that doesn't get nearly enough press. Let's start with verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the common argument against this is that he's only speaking here to Israel. And that's a comical statement because Paul begins the letter speaking about Gentiles to the Jew. And there is a certain promise of a future for Israel. But smattered all throughout this letter is the declaration that all who believe will experience righteousness. At the same time, all of those who reject it will experience punishment. There's absolutely no way this is, that this is reserved exclusively for Israel. A person who would say such a thing has taken little or no time at all to think through the context of the letter. Why would anyone think that he's simply speaking to Israel unless he simply wanted them to only be speaking of Israel? But the promise here points to God's sovereignty. The statement here points to God's sovereignty. He says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? And there must be a question. I think it would be dishonest to just, you know, maybe you've never seen this before. You go, wow, this is in my Bible. It would be dishonest to say, okay, no problem. This is heavy and it's difficult. This is not something that someone should simply read and go, okay, no problem. God's word says it, I believe it, you know, and then go get the bumper sticker. That's not the way to approach these things. Paul asks this question because he knows that people are going to be perplexed by this theological reality. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, the person who says that this is only speaking of Israel and non-Israeli nations is forgetting the fact that when a person understands what Paul is saying, they're going to be troubled by it. If he's only talking about Israel and non-Israeli nations, there's no problem. There's no problem for you and me today. But because he knows it's going to be difficult for people to believe and understand, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And in man's mind, this is an injustice. That God would be sovereign. That he would determine whom he's going to save and whom he's not going to save. That somehow seems unfair. And so Paul very gently and graciously asks the question for the person who's willing to ask that, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I encourage you to think about the reality that the emphasis is on the word mercy. 
we've already profoundly declared the reality that man is culpable for his eternal torment. Man is at fault. So the fact that God in his kindness and in his compassion would simply choose to extend his mercy to some is an act of kindness. And when's the last time you received some sort of blessing while at the same time not deserving it, someone else didn't receive that blessing that they too did not deserve, and you looked at whoever gave you that blessing and said, that's not fair. Wouldn't you simply say, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to extend some kindness to me. And this is exactly what God has done. This is impossible for the unbeliever to believe. He fights it tooth and nail. He refuses to believe, this is the problem, this is what it comes down to, he refuses to believe that God won't fit into his belief system. I'm convinced about what's fair and what's not fair. Therefore, as I read the Bible, God better perform. He better meet my definition of what's just and right. And Paul was quick to clear this up. Again, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this is very similar to God's words to Job. Sit down and shut up. It's a gracious sit down and shut up, but that's what it is. Listen to what he says. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? See, when you and I start applying our own belief system to the person of God, that's the point where we must be willing to humble ourselves and recognize that it has only been pride that has caused us to put God into a corner that he's unwilling to be placed in. Why have you made me like this? Right? But who are you, O oh man, verse 20, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the mercies of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Is he speaking only about Israel here? No, obviously not. As indeed, it's, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I want you to see the unceasing grief and confidence of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. The unceasing grief and confidence of the one whose hope is in the sovereign, merciful God. 
Back to the beginning of chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Show me the person who thinks he brought himself to Christ who has this attitude. He doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. He thinks the homosexual who is depraved of mind needs to simply buck up and do what I did. He needs to get his act together. Paul goes on, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are all Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul holds out hope that some will be saved. Why? Because of the doctrine of election. Because God gives mercy to whom he will give mercy. And it is not dependent upon man who wills, but God who grants mercy. And so what do you and I do in a decadent and dying society? I gave you four points last week. I'll give you just a couple more. If I ask others if you are wise, we first began to deal with this text. We pointed out the reality that those who are foolish of heart experience darkness of mind. Go to people who will tell you the truth. Do you see wisdom in me? Do you see me increasing in a love for truth? Do you see me growing in wisdom? Do you see the Word of God changing me? Or do you see a, a brash foolishness and unwillingness to be taught? That was number five, by the way. Number six, ask if you are hypocritically judgmental. Ask someone to be honest with you about this. Are you hypocritically judgmental? Unwilling to have compassion upon those who are depraved of mind, but convinced you simply need to protect your family from them. You can do both. Seven, ask yourself, is your faith in Christ confirmed by your victory over sin the way David's was? You say, I thought David sinned pretty horribly. He did, but those were rare occasions. Is your faith in Christ confirmed? Is your imputed righteousness confirmed by victory over sin? Does your life display the work of Christ? And then last, number eight, do you grieve over the lost. Do you grieve over the lost and do you share the gospel with them? And I didn't say, do you attempt to manipulate people into making a decision for Jesus? Because that's not sharing the gospel. That's something else. I'm not sure what we'd call that, but it's not sharing the gospel. See, the person who, who would be honest and say, you know what? Yeah, I don't grieve over the lost. I don't, I don't grieve over my neighbors who are committed to sexual deviancy. In fact, I'd rather they leave. Uh, that's a person who 
is engaging full bore in hypocritical judgment. And now's the time for us as a local church to determine what we will do with this. Will we sit by and listen as people complain and whine about those who are committed to sexual sin as a result of a darkness of mind? Or will we pray? And will we gather in our family groups and strategize and think and determine how we can be receptive to those whom God will certainly save because He will have compassion upon whom He will have compassion and He will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy. Will we show that mercy that He has shown to us? Father, we thank You for the joy of Your Word and its perfection. We thank You for the reality that it scathes the souls of those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. But Lord, we ask for the brazen of heart whose mind apparently is darkened because of an unwillingness to receive truth that You, through Christ, would make Him alive. And we pray that You would use us, Father, as undeserving recipients of Your grace to see that come to pass. We thank You so much for the freedom yet to declare these truths with no real opposition, but we acknowledge that the day is coming where that will certainly no longer be the case. I pray for the families in our church, especially those with young children, that you give each parent a vast devotion to cling closely to the sovereign grace of our loving God who grants mercy to whom he will grant mercy. Lord, may we never place ourselves in the position or think that we somehow are able to determine who the elect are. You've not given Paul the ability to do that, nor us. But Lord, we pray with bleeding hearts. We ask that you would give us an unceasing grief for those who are without Christ. We pray that you would help us to always be mindful of their depraved condition. And Lord, may we never think, may we never be influenced by the false theology that says that we climbed out of that pit ourselves, but may we simply express gratitude for the fact that you lifted us out of that pit and you've called us to the privilege and the ability to proclaim truth to all those who will hear it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.